Welcome to episode 32 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This one, by a quite remarkable coincidence, is being released on the 32nd of the month, which hasn't happened before, and which is unlikely to happen again now that we're in a leap year, at least until we stop using Greenwich Mean Time, to measure the temperature Today's lucky number is four, perhaps even six, but it is not three, so stop asking. My guest today is Gareth Russell, who has been on the podcast before, but who I didn't think would be invited back after his appalling behavior last time. (laughs) And yet, by a bizarre quirk of fate, a truly bizarre quirk of fate. I happened to be reading Gareth's book on the Titanic. The book is called Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era, when the news that a small submersible, the Titan, had gone missing in the Atlantic Ocean on its way down to the wreckage. So for the last week, Gareth, I've been consuming that news while reading your book in the background. And as a result, my mind has been fixated on this overall topic. So I thought I should do a podcast on it. And who better to do that podcast with than with the author of the book? This is the second time you and I will have spent more than 10 minutes without a drink I loathe it. But with that in mind, welcome back to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So before we talk about the Titanic, you were actually invited onto this very submersible, the one we sadly learned today had been lost in a catastrophic implosion a couple of years ago. Yes. Um, so I, the book had been had been out uh, quite a few years ago. I'll say nothing, Charles. Um, but it um, it was out in uh, twenty nineteen, and then the paperback had come out uh, around the time the world had been kicked onto its side by by COVID nineteen and various decisions thereof. And then in twenty at the tail end of twenty twenty, discussions were happening about the beginning of commercial dives to the Titanic site, and I was contacted by a production company, uh, one of whom had read The Ship of Dreams, and wanted me, I mean, you, you've you read it, You've you. there's a lot of um, detail or discussion in the book about what it was like to travel on it and what the physical layout of the ship was. And I think that probably swung the needle in my favor, unknowingly at the time. They wanted someone who could narrate with a hopefully a decent amount of clarity what the cameras in the wreck were showing and it became clear to me i think in the second or third meeting that i my participation was intended to be slightly more vigorous and in person than i had initially anticipated and so i i was aware that i would fly to canada to join the ship at st john's in newfoundland that would sail out to the disaster site and in, I think, the second or maybe the third production meeting, I said, sorry, am I, am I, am I misreading the, the tone here? Am I expected to get in the submarine? To which they said, yes, that's sort of the, the, the point. We want you in the submarine and you to narrate from the porthole in the submarine what we're seeing. And I said, um, very politely, leave it with me. And spent the next few days thinking about it. And I, and I will be absolutely honest, Charles, I would be a fool if I hadn't considered that being the, the historian to go down in this inaugural commercial dive, to be in that documentary, would not have been great for the book. And I did wrestle with that. And also, I did consider very strongly if I was going to be the fool who was the historian who turned down the chance to physically see the Titanic after years of, of writing about it. And Eventually, I had to sort of operate by the mantra of "know thyself," and I and I knew I could I could not get into that submarine for a variety of reasons. 
we did an interview earlier this uh, earlier today actually with the Sunday Times here and and to their credit they were absolutely in no way trying to lead me but they did ask in light of all the concerns that are coming out now about the security and the safety of the submarine did that play a factor in my turning down the offer to be very clear no not at all i didn't i didn't get far enough in my discussion to to really investigate the safety or lack thereof of the submarine on conclusion i thought a dive to the titanic by someone who had no experience in submarines was the almost the definition of lunacy and i also you know you know me i don't particularly like it when people are too close to me in a queue for too long i'm not really comfortable with very um crowded spaces and being one of four at that time in a submarine that is shaped like an only marginally larger than a cigar was something that i did not think i would excel at so i sort of had nightmare images of of me being the historian who instead of being known for the documentary went viral on youtube for losing my mind in the middle of a submarine but on a more serious note i was also very aware that there, there is an element to which this is like bungee jumping or skydiving in that there are many times these dives will be done and they are and they come off safely however if something goes wrong the chances of survival border on zero and so that did play in my mind so at the next meeting i said you know i'm not i'm, I'm not going to get in the submarine and i understand if you'd like to go with another presenter and they said no you'll join the ship and you'll narrate the footage that's sent up from the dive and then as we went along eventually the i believe and this is more suppositional because i was never really given a complete answer but i believe that ocean gate decided they didn't want a documentary crew with them for that dive and i would have to say that does make sense to me because at the time it struck me as very odd that a company would want a camera crew at an inaugural dive at which i mean you know any kind of maiden voyage the titanic ironically being the supreme example of it but any maiden voyage something can go wrong and they usually do on first voyages so the documentary was shelved and i do remember worrying that my decision to decline the place in the submarine had been what ended the possibility of the documentary it, I, I was literally assured that was not the case and that actually the documentary the decision was taken separately that it would not go ahead but had it been i i would not have been in that submarine for love nor money so i want to move on to the titanic but just before then at what point in this news cycle did yep. you realize oh my goodness that's the submersible i was almost on was it immediate or did it take a while it was immediate uh because it there are the only ones doing it at the moment and also i without being on julie macabre but um i am genuinely very surprised that there hasn't been an accident before this simply because everything everything that nature is offering up on the descent of the titanic and around the titanic may as well have been designed to kill you and the titanic wreck itself let's not forget what it was it was a forty-six thousand ton ocean liner with room for just over three thousand people there's a lot of detritus around there and it was a very well built ship it's survived in some semblance of its former shape for 111 years but it is still a 111 year old shipwreck and it is disintegrating and if part of the superstructure gives way as it has in other cases or if the crow's nest collapses further or if another bathtub slides out of a disintegrating first class suite and the submarine is anywhere near it then the potential for disaster to me was very high so i knew it was i knew it was it, that was the the setup that i had excused myself from immediately when the headlines broke all right let's talk about the Titanic more generally. So it's been 111 years since it sunk, and still, clearly, people seem desperate to go down and see the wreckage, even at great potential cost to their personal safety. And for what I would consider the questionable benefit of seeing a wreck through a tiny, blurry little window... Yes. Why do you think this particular story, a century and a bit on, still entrances us in the way 
that it does. Why was I reading your book, unable to put it down, 111 years after this happened? Well, firstly, thank you very much. That's immensely kind. And secondly, one of the great derelictions of my job as a historian is I should have an answer to this question that's more concise and pithy. Because I think many people want to know what is the fascination with the Titanic. I think part of it, in a quite mundane way, is logistical, which is the nature, the unusual nature of the way the Titanic sank headfirst and gathering speed as it went, as it sank. And also a relatively long sinking process, two hours and 40 minutes. If you compare that to other shipwrecks that it's sometimes compared to, like the Lusitania in 1915 or the Empress of Ireland in 1914, they both sank in under half an hour. And so what the way the Titanic sinking head first and the length of time it took to sink allowed the actions of those on board to become a morality play. You went through in microcosm the theatre of death. You thought you were fine. Then you began to doubt were you fine. And then you realized you were in trouble and you had to choose how to respond to death. And everybody wants to believe that they would be the heroic figure. No one wants to believe that they're the ones jumping into lifeboats and pushing people out of the way to get there or refusing to row their lifeboat back to those who were trapped after the final plunge. And so the Titanic both offers answers and poses questions about how we would deal with the supreme test of when life looks as like it's about to be snatched from us. I think that's a very big part of it. I think also, and that's slightly inspired the, the subtitle of my book, I think the fact that it was so close to the end of two periods in British and American history, the Edwardian era in Britain, the Gilded Age in America, it was so close to, to their end that in retrospect, I think its luxury and its technological prowess became symbols for a disintegrating social order. And by the way, that's a really interesting point you made about what are you really going to see through the portal? And I can assure you from having seen some of the footage of what it looks like at the portal, you and I have seen better footage of the Titanic on our screens. Without question, you will have seen better footage of the Titanic, more clear, more defined, in greater scope, if you were watching the footage that came up rather than being in the submarine. No question about it. And so I think that ties into the third reason, which I would say is akin to the psychology behind a pilgrimage, which is the belief between that there's a symbiosis between emotional connection and physical proximity to something. And in that sense, it's also a little bit like people who climb Everest or people who undertake any form of, of extreme tourism, for want of a better phrase. That mightn't even be a phrase, but it covers it, I think, extreme tourism. I think there are many people who would or did take the dive to the Titanic because they're fascinated for others, it's because it's there and it's totemic and it's significant and it's important in our culture. So to say, I've seen the Titanic brings with it a certain cachet both to yourself and to others. So I think that's that's a, a cocktail of why it remains so fascinating and also why it retains the ability to lure people down to it when everything should be mitigating against it. I think we've seen this with the rescue mission or, or the search and rescue mission. Part of the real difficulty was that there are almost no submarines in the world that can reach that depth. So there has to be an element of bravado in wanting to go there, as much as there is fascination with the original story of this ship and its sinking itself. On the morality play, there are different sorts of morality play that play out during the sinking. And one of the most moving lines in your book is when you're describing... Jack Thayer and his friend jumping off the ship. Yes. And you say that it's impossible not to see in their bravery a pre-echo of all of those young men who went over the top in the First World War to the unknown. That's a very personal, local morality play. Then you have these bigger morality plays, these parables, these cautionary tales. Now, the story of the Titanic is often turned into a 
warning against arrogance or greed or into a justification for regulation. Bruce Ismay, the CEO of the White Star Line in particular, has repeatedly been turned into a villain. But in your book, you cast some doubt on some of these narratives. You cast some doubt on the idea that this was particularly instructive in the way that it has been outlined. So to what extent was what happened the fault of the builders or of the White Star Line or of Captain Smith or of the crew or of the whole Edwardian setup? I think certainly you cannot fault the builders and I would refer them refer people to the Olympic which took many a knock. The Titanic's slightly smaller and younger sister ship, fairly similar in design. The Olympic took many a knock in her career and continued to be noted for her seaworthiness and her popularity. She was actually nicknamed Old Reliable on the Atlantic run after a few years had transformed her from into Venerable. There's no ship in 1912. There are actually precious few ships today that could survive having nearly one third of their length opened. To the Atlantic and survive. It's it wasn't a significant, truly significant amount of damage that was done when the collision happened. So the builders less, not at all, really. Ismay, Ismay was interesting because I, I was conscious. I was not doing. I was doing a sort of a rehabilitation, but a rehabilitation I often find slightly frustrating in history because. Historians have a tendency to say, well, A isn't true, so Q is true. And you think you know, there were quite a few steps between A and Q before we got to a completely different version of events that happened. Simply because someone is not the vulpine capitalist monster that Ismay is traditionally presented as does not mean he was even a particularly likable person. I didn't like or admire Ismay. I felt a great deal of sympathy for him. But Ismay really becomes the villain because Ismay commits the great cardinal sin of surviving. And the figure who ultimately bears responsibility for the decision to go too fast, which the Titanic was doing, was Smith. But Smith died. So it felt unchivalrous at the time to blame Smith. There were very few people. George Bernard Shaw was one of the only people who came out and said, it was Smith. He went too fast. And Smith is the captain of the Titanic. Smith, excuse me, yes, Captain Smith is, is the commander. And I find in the course of researching the book a, a series of interviews he'd given earlier when he was commanding, about 10 years earlier, I think nine actually, when he was commanding another ship for the White Star Line. So captains traditionally stayed within companies and moved up the ranks and were often taken from what had been the larger ship onto you know the newest flagship, the largest ship in the company. And that was very much the path of, of Edward Smith's career in White Star Service. And earlier, I think by 1903, he gave an, an extraordinary interview that really isn't quoted very often, where he said, modern technology has gone beyond shipwrecks. And I think he was really incredibly complacent and did not question at all the perceived wisdom that the only thing you slowed megaships down for was fog, which even said out loud, sounds bewildering as a piece of logic. So I do think if you had to pin the blame on anyone, it's Smith, it's Captain Smith. However, even then, I would temper that by saying there were a great deal of, there's a great number of captains, excuse me, who did the same. It was only after the Titanic that they began to slow them as they went, these ships as they went into ice fields. I think what frustrates me about, as you say, this didactic instructional version of the Titanic is that it ties into versions of the ship that are simply intellectually unsustainable from a documentary from a documentary or evidence-based perspective. There was nothing wrong with the steel or the rudder. There was not a raging fire in the boiler room that fatally damaged the hull. There was a minor smoldering in one of the coal bunkers. There wasn't a malign capitalist conspiracy to directly sink it on purpose or anything. It's a fantasy, but... In many ways, I think there's an interesting psychology that underpins the attempts to find a reason of something that was wrong in the construction or was deliberately rendered wrong in order to sink her. Because it psychologically reassures us that a disaster on that scale has to be the fault of something and that if everything is done right, we can still survive it. And I think what I took from the Titanic is 
there were an extraordinary number of factors that had to weave together to bring about the collision with the iceberg and then the very heavy loss of life afterwards. There were a great number of things that had to go wrong at the same time. And it was an improbable sequence of coincidences falling like dominoes. Which hasn't happened before or since, right? No, exactly. I mean, part of it is because the International Ice Patrol was set up afterwards, and that has very definitely had a hugely positive impact. And, and it, I mean, it's, it's still useful today. But what I would say is it was particularly invaluable in the years between, let's say, for the sake of argument, 1912 and about 1955, when the transatlantic route between Britain and America was still incredibly busy with multiple ships. It was really only after the arrival of the jet plane that the International Ice Patrol ceased to become such a truly important piece of maritime safety. But no, it hasn't. It has not happened on the scale of the Titanic again, or and certainly not in the way. I mean, there have been, excuse me, heavier losses of life at sea, but it has not happened with that domino falling of coincidences. And I think, to sort of link it slightly to the, to the submarine, the Titan, there are, there are you, it's interesting how many things spiraling together can, can go wrong. But I think actually in the Titanic's case, it was more technologically shocking that it sank than, than the tragedy that's happened this week. Was there more hype about the Titanic before she sailed than there would have been about other comparable ships? Or is this what happened every time there was a big new vessel? We were obviously in that period in something of an arms race between the various shipping lines, also between nations, the British and the Germans had a a naval rivalry. Did the Titanic become the sensation that it is because she sunk, because she sunk on her maiden voyage, because as a result of it being her maiden voyage, she had a lot of very famous and very rich people on board? Or before she left, was she treated differently than the other great ships of the era? That's a great question. Um, she. The answer is a very frustrating that you'll remember from our shared days of essays at college. It is a very frustrating historian's answer of, to a certain extent, yes, to a certain <laughs> extent, no. Um, the liturgy of the historian. Uh, so in, to the extent that, yes, so the Titanic, as I've mentioned, was, was one in a three-ship design. The Olympic came first, the Britannic was due to arrive later. The Olympic certainly had the lion's share of the media attention. She went into service a year before. And partly the reason why the Olympic got so much more media attention initially was because the leap in size towards the what was called the Olympic class, they were, they were all sort of based in the Olympic, the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. Their closest rival in terms of size was another British passenger liner called the Mauritania that was 32,000 tons. And so it is a 50% again increase in, in tonnage. The Olympic's 45,000 tons. The famous line is half again as large as, the, as their nearest rival, which is fudging the mouth slightly, but forgivable for advertising copy. And so the Olympic offers a lot of firsts. It's the first fully sized swimming pool at sea. It offers a lot of new amenities. It's a lot more spacious. It's the first to offer an elevator at sea for second class passengers, etc. And so all of the innovations of that class of ship get written about for the Olympics maiden voyage in 1911. So there isn't quite the same hype when the Titanic arrives in 1912. They're quite similar in decoration. The only thing that the Titanic really offers that's new is that it offers another cafe, a Parisian-style coffee house on board, and a one newer type of suite, a sort of more grand version of, of private suites and offered in the Olympic, which had their own private promenade decks. But broadly speaking, the amenities offered in the Olympic are written about in 1911, so there isn't the same awe for the Titanic in 1912 that there was for the Olympic in 1911. But there is certainly still enough media excitement because, as you've mentioned, there is a kind of commercial arms race going on. And these ships are media darlings. They, they get a lot of copy. And so although the Titanic doesn't quite make the front pages in the way the Olympic does, it's still uh, referenced quite a lot on the inside pages of the newspaper. It also sails at quite an interesting time in the social calendar. I think it, it's almost bewildering for us to think today 
how rigid the upper class's social calendar was, the idea of the season, and when you were in certain places at certain times of the year. It's one of the reasons why there were so, f- not none, but very few British elite on board the Titanic, because it was so close to the start of the summer season of socialising in London. So a lot of them just had no intention of leaving. Whereas you had a lot of wealthy Americans coming back from prolonged winters in the Riviera who needed to be back for the start of summer you know, to open up the houses in the Hamptons and Cape Cod and all the rest of it, in Rhode Island, and to start, you know, doing summer as a verb. And that was why there were a lot of very wealthy, influential people on it. And certainly you had people like Colonel J.J. Astor, a Guggenheim, a Strauss, who was also a former congressman for, I think, the 18th Congressional District in New York. But you had a lot of very influential Americans on it, and it was technically a British ship with admittedly an American parent company. And so because of that British origin, American destination, and American passenger list, particularly in first class, I should say, it meant that the media frenzy on both sides of the Atlantic was equally intense, which was quite rare before 1912 for both British and American media to get equally excited about a story in the same way. So that was certainly part of it. And I also think what struck me quite forcefully researching the Edwardian period, is the complete trust in the concept of heft, be that technological, size, you know, in the way everything in the advertising was geared to showing off the size of the Titanic and the Olympic. They were usually marketed together. And so I think what the Titanic did was, yes, it, it was noted, it was in the newspapers before it sank, but by its very act of sinking, it headbutted every Edwardian sensibility about progress and the very concept of progress and really and truly shocked people. So I think it it was noted before it hit the iceberg. It was famous, truly famous, and hasn't ceased to be after it. You mentioned conspiracy theory, that it was deliberately sunk, for example. There are other conspiracy theories. How soon did they pop up? I was told recently that there's a thriving Titanic rumor industry on TikTok. Yes, there is. What isn't there on TikTok? Now, is that a modern invention or did this rumor mongering and conspiracy theorizing start as soon as the news came in? It depends what you mean by conspiracy theory, but in terms of probably the most enduring theory, which is not about why it sunk, but about what happened when it was sinking, the theory that the third-class passengers were deliberately kept below decks to prevent them surviving, or to enable the more efficient and swifter evacuation of first-class passengers, begins in 1912 thanks to a third-class survivor called Olas Jorgensen Abelseth, who was a Norwegian farmer emigrating to America with his sister Karen. And we know that Abelseth made it up because we have his surviving letters to his parents about the sinking, in which he makes absolutely no mention of him or Karen being detained in any way. In fact, his initial version of events told to his family was that stewards opened their doors into their cabins and said, get up, get up on deck. But Abelseth was recruited by a news producer called Jules Brulatour, who ran one of the, sort of the newsreel companies of the day. And what he did was he wanted Titanic survivors to come on his payroll and accompany quite sensational, spliced together newsreel footage and tell dramatic stories of the sinking. And that seems to be where Abelseth starts to massage and change the story about the third class sort of being pushed back. And that that is a story that endures. But in terms of the conspiracy theories about why it sank, there's not really a massive conspiracy theory push until 1943. That seems to be where it begins. And it began thanks to Josef Goebbels, who was the German minister. Well, he was normally so honest. That's a shock he to was, hear. It is. It's strange. I know what you're thinking. Joseph Goebbels is is. But you can't is trust Joseph of, Goebbels. Who can? Who you can trust? you trust? Absolutely. This is it. You know. You 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 think when you your job as the minister for propaganda, you 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 hope you can trust them, <laughs> and um, yes, Joseph Goebbels was had two great loves 
in the cinema industry. One was his was actresses, several of whom were his mistresses, and the other was very grand costume dramas that subtly and not so subtly attacked the British. And during the first, Second World War, excuse me, the Reich's Ministry for Propaganda had invested an enormous amount of money into creating a series of costume dramas that looked at the Boer War, the life of Mary, Queen of Scots, and some of the Jacobite and Irish struggles for independence from Britain, and made big movies about them. And if you participated in these movies, even as the war effort became more strained, you were excused active service in the front. That was how seriously Goebbels took them. When the United States joined the war, they needed something that could widen the target of these propaganda epics to take down America at the same time as Britain. And they hit on the idea of the Titanic. And what they did in this movie, Titanic, they created a version of Ismay that interestingly has endured, where he urges the captain to speed the ship up. They also seem to have created the idea that the Titanic was trying to break the record for the fastest commercial crossing of the Atlantic, which it was designed as being incapable of doing. They chose to go a day slower so that people would be more comfortable than they were on the faster ship, the, the rival Mauritania. But in the movie, there are sort of fantastically overwrought scenes of first-class passengers terribly snooty and standing to sing God Save the King, while American financiers rush off to try and um, send telegrams to buy shares in the corrupt, speedy White Star Line company. And it's, and it's presented that the ship goes too fast to artificially inflate the shares of the White Star Company and get it out of trouble. So the idea that the ship was recklessly put in danger as part of a strategy by White Star Line, and that Ismay was the man behind it, dates from the, the Nazi propaganda movie Titanic. I suppose there's probably a broader discussion about when in our culture did conspiracy theories acquire such mainstream legitimacy. I suppose some people would say it was after the assassination of President Kennedy. I I personally think if you're really looking for the nexus, uh, the the, the point at which they began to spiral, it was sometime around the death, between the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, and the 9-11 attacks. And I think they, they were the ones where you see the conspiracy theories beginning almost immediately. Whereas with others, they, they tended to take a while. And it's interesting that with the Titanic, we see the explosion of conspiracy theories in and around the late 1990s, beginning with this theory that it was deliberately swapped with its sister, the Olympic, to commit insurance fraud. And I go into the, to the book of the many reasons why that is impossible. But it does say something for the the impact of these conspiracy theories that I spent that amount of time discussing it because 30 years ago a historian wouldn't have touched it they just wouldn't have addressed the conspiracy theories I think that probably speaks to that aforementioned trait of not wanting to accept the really bone chilling lesson the Titanic offers which is that no there isn't a reason it happens sometimes things just happen that are terrible because of coincidence and I also think there is a malaise within our society that tends to find that tends to disbelieve what we're seeing. I think, I might be misquoting him or absolutely butchering the quote, but I think Douglas Murray said recently in an article in The Spectator, part of the problem is that we're dealing with a society in which two different people see something completely different and they don't always believe what they're seeing. And I think we have entered into a point in which sometimes in history, we just don't want to accept the really obvious and I don't think any less interesting theory that the official version of events is true. There is no evidence whatsoever and a mountain to the contrary to back up any of the conspiracy theories. Also, it's a crowded market. And I think sometimes there are historians or writers who want to get a jump start on sales. You know, it, it does make copy, it makes headlines when you come up with a new theory about the Titanic. And I think. That was one of the reasons why I was so content to focus really on the people and the events of it. Because to me, if you go into the archives and look at the sources, there is a richness of storytelling and history still there that does not need the conspiracy theories to to, to buoy it up. All right, so it's not a conspiracy theory, but you mentioned the widespread belief that third-class passengers were kept below decks or locked behind gates so that first-class and second-class passengers could get off the boat. Now, you said that wasn't true, but third-class passengers did die 
in, if not greater numbers, at a greater percentage. Totally. Why? Well, interestingly, which I did not realize until I started writing the book, generally statisticians will break down the Titanic dead into gender and class for adults and age for children. So it's you, you measure the, the death toll by first-class women, first-class men, first-class children, repeat for the same classes. Of those nine demographics, in fact, the one with the highest survival is second-class children, which is 100%. And the lowest is third-class men, which I believe is about 163 or 17%. And there are various reasons for this. The first is it is worth noting that there is no percentage that shows men surviving more than they died. So there's no 50% plus survival rate for men, to the best of my recollection. So a lot of statisticians will say, you cannot solely factor class into this. Gender played an enormous role in deciding whether you lived or died. And we see that, particularly through the decision of the ship's second officer, Charles Lightoller, to install a the famous rule, women and children first. So it was women and children were prioritized, which, which is with why, him was more like women and children only, right? Yeah, it got it there it's interesting because it certainly so there were two obviously sides of the ship, and I believe Lightholler was in charge of the starboard lifeboats being evacuated, and his immediate superior, William Murdoch, was in charge of the other side, of the port side. And Murdoch did not prioritize women and children at least not until later on. He just let anyone who wanted to get into the lifeboats go. And part of that was because in the early stages of evacuation, they couldn't persuade anyone to get in them. But Lightholler, yes, began to really rigorously apply the women and children rule. And it was it was presented in a lot, of, including a lot of British movies, as one of the great heroic acts of the night. Lightholler, I should say, was an incredibly brave man. Even in his old age, he helped with the evacuation of the British forces at Dunkirk. But... There are really horrible scenes of him trying to deny 13-year-old boys in a place in the lifeboat because they'd long trousers on, and that was a sign of manhood. But bear in mind, it was also freezing and in the middle of the Atlantic, so of course their parents had dressed them warmly. There was a particularly, I mean, just absolutely harrowing example of what that rule could do, which was that a third-class passenger called Rhoda Abbott, who was fleeing an abusive marriage with the help of her congregation in the Salvation Army, had an 11-year-old son and a 16-year-old son, and they wouldn't let the 16-year-old in, so she and the other boy held back to see what they could do. They were all swept overboard together, and the two children drowned and the mother lived. I mean, there were, I mean, the impact of, the, of the, how strictly Charles Lightoller applied the women and children rule was contested at the time, but it was drowned out by the claim that this was chivalry, what he'd done. And so, yes, the gender played a, played a huge role in it. The other role is of what brings about the, the, the higher third-class death toll. One is linked to gender. Many people will know if they've studied the history of emigration into the United States in the early 20th century and the 19th century, it was not uncommon for single men or even married men to go over alone and then send for their families when they had made enough money to bring them over and, and house them safely. And there were a, the third class had many of those, those types of passengers. They had more men as a statistic than second and first class. So that impacted it as well. First and second class were overwhelmingly populated by people who could read and speak English. And it, it seems baffling to us today to think that there were no signs anywhere in the Titanic that were written in any language except English. And it's something like, I mean, it's, it's well, it's over 90% of her crew could only speak English. But when you go into third class, because the Titanic collected passengers in England, France, and Ireland, it was at the nexus of a huge network of people hoping to move to America and start a new life. And so two-thirds of third-class passengers did not speak English. And so the crew, who really had not been told by Captain Smith of how serious the situation was, were not trying to impart a panicked message to the third-class passengers until it was too late. At that point, many of them couldn't understand it. And when third-class passengers did try to make their way up on deck, the signposting was inadequate. The crew didn't really know what was happening. Communication between them was difficult as well. And the other issue was the physical layout of the Titanic, in which really White Star Line cannot be blamed. 
I think it was 1898, there was a massive cholera outbreak in an immigration center in Hamburg in Germany. And the United States government had introduced very strict laws about who could and who could not enter America without going without being processed at Ellis Island. And that was third class and or steerage, depending on whether you were four class ship or you called third class steerage. So if first and second class passengers came in to sustain social contact with third class, they would have to go through Ellis Island as well. And many people, particularly in second class, paid extra because they wanted to avoid that. The physical design of the Titanic was, if you look at it, the promenade decks for first and second class were adjacent to one another. Third class was way at the back. Obviously, I should point out, third class and the Titanic cost as much as second class in other ships. It was the equivalent, you know, flying across the Atlantic today in coach and British Airways or Delta or Aer Lingus or Air France. It was a very, it was a comfortable journey. It wasn't something, you know, that could be done for cheap. But those rules were still in place. And so... The layout of the ship was to keep the first and second class passengers closer together and the third class away to avoid any potential entanglement with having to send second and first class through Ellis Island. And that meant when it came to trying to move the third class passengers in an emergency up to the boat deck, which was part of the promenade areas for first and second class, the physical layout of the Titanic was not designed to encourage that movement to happen it was supposed to be difficult and so you have basically you had more men you had a crew that was unable to communicate properly with passengers of diverse nationalities you had a captain that failed to instill a, a, a sufficient sense of concern in the hospitality section for want of a better word of the crew you had no signposts that would have held passengers who didn't have english as a first or second language and you also had the physical layout of the ship conforming to quarantine laws at the time that did not make it easy for third class passengers to be moved to areas close to the boats what about those boats there weren't enough boats for passengers this is famous and there's that line you hear over and over again that if we put more of them on the titanic they'll clutter up the deck yeah but you suggest in your book that even if there had been three times as many boats it wouldn't have changed much about the outcome why that probably was one of the things that surprised me the most trials actually doing and i thought i was wrong when i it, the thought occurred to me, I thought that it can't be right. The Titanic not having enough lifeboats is sort of a sacred cow of historical writing. It's true, it, it didn't have enough for a full-scale evacuation, but they didn't even have time to launch all the ones that they had. By the time the Titanic went into its final plunge, officers, crew, and several volunteering passengers were still trying to float the last four, some of the last four of the lifeboats, admittedly collapsible ones, with backup lifeboats, trying to float those off the ship. So at the very most, if there had been, say, double the amount, you might have seen a, a not inconsequential number of, say, 100 or 200 people more saved. And that's not insignificant. But I still don't see, because of the timing of the sinking, and how, you know, you know, filling and lowering a lifeboat is time consuming no matter how long it took the titanic to sink you know they i think the best case scenario you still would have been looking at about a thousand people dead there simply was not sufficient time to lower all the lifeboats now a completely different component of that is not only did they not have enough but they also didn't fill the ones that they had and that was a much more egregious error in part that dates back to or runs back excuse me to captain smith again not wanting to panic the passengers, so failing to instill a sense of urgency in the crew. And you have extraordinary stories of, you know, Astor refusing to put his pregnant wife in one of the early lifeboats because he thought she's pregnant. She shouldn't be going in a white wooden painted craft 70 feet into the darkness into the North Atlantic. Yeah, when it, she'd be... it's funny because one of the other things that stuck with me was a description, and I forget, you'll remind me who said it, that... The lifeboat was lowered, and at the point that it hit the water, the people inside thought, oh my goodness, we've made a terrible mistake. Yeah. And then they rowed back for about two or three minutes and realized, oh no, we are now going to live. Because yeah. being on the boat did not feel, at least at the top, it just didn't feel scary. No, not at all. I mean, you have to, it's, it was a passenger called Gladys Cherry, a first-class passenger. She was a British socialite, and she was traveling with her cousin, the Countess of Rothes. And they had sort of had a fairly distressing scene on deck where the 
Prime Minister of Spain's nephew had stood back and, and begged the Countess to take his, his newlywed wife with her in the lifeboats in case anything happened. But even then, Gladys did not think that it was life or death. They, she actually thought that the Penascos were sort of so, so in love that they were exaggerating slightly. And she said as they were lowered past deck after deck and they touched into the water, she did think, oh my goodness, what have we done? It's really interesting you said about the top decks because it also the, the tilt by that stage was so slight. You really only saw it when you rode out away from it. And a lot of these ships tilted anyway. You know, sometimes they leaned slightly to port or they leaned a bit forward, depending on the distribution of weight within them. So bear in mind by this point, the passengers have all been at sea for four days, just over most of them for four days. And they don't assume that a ship needs to be perfectly straight all the time. So yeah, absolutely. There was they could not persuade people until the dip became prominent and undeniable to get into the lifeboats. All right, let me ask you this as a final question. All right. What do you think of the arguments that people shouldn't go down there? That this is a sacred gravesite, that it's a it's a place of rest. Yeah. I mean, others, I know we can't raise it practically or legally, but others say, bring it up, put it in a museum. Carve this it up, is, yeah. Well, others say, why not treat it like Gettysburg? Yeah. Where are you on that? I have, I've oscillated on that. I used to be very much of the opinion, don't touch it, it's a graveyard. And I have friends and colleagues who feel very strongly that way. And I completely understand why. However, I do disagree. And it is things like Gettysburg, and it's things like the Tower of London, which, I, you know, if, if you go to the chapel of St. Peter Advincula, I think people think that Anne Boleyn, Catherine Hart, and Jane Grey are buried there and nobody else. There's something like 1,600 bodies buried throughout the Tower of London. So there's actually more corpses, or there's more death associated with the Tower of London than there is the Titanic. And hundreds of tourists troop in there every day. And it's the same with the former trenches on the Western Front, Gettysburg, any civil war, American civil war battle site. Why are the dead of the Titanic sacred in a way the dead of no other historical site is? I suppose some could argue that there are still you know, grandchildren or great-grandchildren who can remember or who grew up in families that were impacted in some way by the sinking. You know, there were families that were plunged into poverty by the death of someone on the Titanic, or there were families that grandchildren saw grandparents dealing with severe PTSD and trauma, etc. So I, I don't I, I draw a distinction here with family members because I can understand to a certain extent that. But the suggestion that you don't go anywhere near a historical site because people have died there would rule out everything from the pyramids to half of London. I mean, it, you know, it, it, history is by its nature the waiting room for death. That's what it is. It all ends in death. It's not true that the Titanic is the only monument to the dead. Many bodies were recovered and buried predominantly in Canada in the immediate aftermath of the sinking. There were memorial services in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Belfast ground to a complete halt in commemoration of it. There's a monument outside City Hall. There's monuments in Southampton and London. The the Roman Catholic Archbishop of New York ordered the entire archdiocese into mourning and requiem masses to be sung throughout the archdiocese for the Titanic dead in 1912. There are monuments littered, as I've said, throughout the world to them. So they are. it's not as if the physical wreck of the shipwreck is the only memorial to the people who tragically lost their lives in 1912. My concern with the dives to the Titanic are different. I, so I disagree with the idea that you, you shouldn't go near it because people have, have died there. But it is an unquestionable fact that the more frequent the dives, the more damage is done. And whilst I do think that, the, the broadly speaking, the major questions that we as historians had about what happened technologically on the night and structurally on the night it sank, they have been answered by previous expeditions to the wreck site and some truly extraordinary archaeological and scientific research. But, it, but every, di- every dive will despite its best intentions, will contribute at least a little bit more damage to the, to the Titanic site. And to me, that it, it is, it's not protected in the same way Gettysburg or the Tower of London 
or the conciergerie or Versailles or anywhere else is it's it's not watched over in the same way. So I think there are valid concerns that the frequency of these dives and in particularly the idea of commercially diving will create more problems for the wreck and the future study of it should be necessary. The second issue I would have with it is slightly more prosaic and pragmatic, which is it's insane. The policy of going down to the Titanic for a commercial trip, and as I've said, different people respond to different things and are excited by and interested by different things. The Titanic is a very, very dangerous place, and no amount of Celine Dion songs, or, or sort of, you know, what I've said slightly glibly, but no amount of songs or movies or the way in which the Titanic has become a benign yet fascinating figure in popular culture should distract us from the fact that it is fascinating, but it's also deadly. It is an extremely dangerous site. It is littered with mechanical pieces of apparatus that have been lurking beneath the sea over a century. It has chandeliers that are still in their sconces, but they've popped out and the wires are hanging loose. There are decomposing pillars leading off what used to be the first-class grand staircase. There are hanging lifeboat davits. There are so many things. I mean, not, it's not that long ago, Charles, I can't remember the exact date, but one of the submarines smacked into one of the propellers, which if you have seen photographs of them, are each blade is several times a man's height, and they're still formidable objects. The Titanic is still formidable. So both the nature and the infrastructure of the ship itself makes me think that it is an extremely dangerous place. And not only is it extremely dangerous, but it is very dangerous to anyone who might have to mount a rescue operation to extract people who are trapped there potentially by any of this falling debris or shifting remnants of the Titanic. And it's for a trip that I would argue is not necessary. So in that sense, in the, in the sense of the risk to those going, the risk to those who have to try to rescue them if they get into trouble, and the potential damage to the wreck itself, I would have to say that no, these tri- these commercial dives, repeated frequent dives to the Titanic, I do not believe should be happening. I completely understand the argument that it should be treated with respect as a tomb. However, I'm not sure that that should necessarily negate archaeological or scientific research happening around it. All right, Gareth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Gareth Russell. Thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>